The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Wednesday, May 6th, 2020, as far away from Cinco de Mayo as it is possible to be in the calendar. It is 5 o'clock p.m. Forget Boris Johnson, people. We have a serious impact from the coronavirus. Uh, There is a cheese crisis going on in France. Politico reports that French cheesemakers are warning that restaurant closures and a downturn turn in international trade have caused a 60% slump in sales of cheeses from Camembert to Roquefort. This could leave, I'm not making this up people, a 5,000 ton cheese surplus to rot, according to Michel Lacoste, president of the National Council. Can I send them my address? Yeah, so this is, um, uh, I know what to do with all that Rockford cheese. <laughs> wait, wait, it, it gets worse. Cheesemakers are looking at desperate measures ranging from destroying tons of luxury stock to derogations from the strict rules normally required to win a protected gourmet label. Uh, I think we may need an airlift of cheese right now out of France. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. We have too much cheese, but in lieu of fun, and in addition to cheese, we have uh, quite a group of people for you today. We have Nicole Wong. We have uh, somebody who I thought was named Alex uh, McGillifree, but who informs me that he goes by AMAC. And we're here talking about content moderation and all associated stuff. So, okay, get us started. Yeah. So, um, Nicole and Amac, you were both, I'm going to introduce you briefly. Nicole was, um, you were at the, um, at Google and you were basically in charge of kind of all of the, um, interfacing between governments and compliance and, uh, kind of Google's policies. Was it just for YouTube? I always forget this. Or was it for all of Google? It was all of Google and it was sort of like, with along with Alex, we both were responsible for like launching all of the products everywhere in the world. So like if you think about Alex was there in 2003, I got there in 2004. Um, right, the, it was just a search engine. Like I literally signed my acceptance letter believing I was joining just a search engine. Um, and then over the course of for me the next seven and a half years, and Alex, you left a little bit before I did. Um, it was like everything from YouTube to Google Maps to self-driving cars. Yeah, that's amazing. And Daphne actually, Daphne Keller, I think you guys both worked with her. She uh, she talks about this, of like working for you, Nicole, and kind of being in charge of all of the, these different products as they started happening and it changed and it kind of is amazing. But you guys have this really interesting uh, kind of like tag team like You're Mario Brothers, like Robin Hood and like, little john or like batman and robin where you just like kind of like so you were at google together but then one left and amac you left first you went to twitter 
Was that when? Yeah, you're... and and I should say like Nicole was my boss at uh, at Google, and when she was hired, um, I was just so excited to get to work with her because she had already done uh, some amazing work pre Google uh, at Perkins Coie. She basically wrote the book on uh, the way internet uh, platforms should think about content. Um, I've and, read that book. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, <laughs> I have a I have a copy signed by most of the people who were involved, uh, oh, really? but it, so it, those good. those people are now that. everywhere, uh, and they're all incredible. Um, so uh, though it sometimes looks that we tag teamed, uh, you know, really uh, Nicole is someone I look up to in a huge way, and and uh, was lucky to get to work with a lot. And Nicole, you went to you were deputy um, chief technology officer uh, for the in the Obama White House, and bef and then Amac, you came in after her, right? Yeah, yeah, did it much better than I did, actually. <laughs> I doubt well, that. Nicole had gone into semi-retirement, and I spent about a year convincing her to come work with me at Twitter. Uh, and then about six months into that, um, Todd Park convinced her to leave Twitter and, and go do uh, bigger work for the government. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for so coming. My recollection, yeah. My recollection, Nicole, is that you had a nickname at Google, which I think at one point Jeff Rosen may have written about publicly. That there were like three things about it. Sorry. That, that, <laughs> that you're like, you were called the decider because you were the person who actually got to decide whether a given thing came down or not. Is that, am I misremembering? This is like many years ago. Am I misremembering this? Um, and it is true that was like the moniker. So here's the thing that most people don't know. Alex gave me the nickname and it was made <laughs> in jest about like, I think it was post George Bush era. So like there's there's a good bit of tongue in cheek about calling me the decider. Um, and which, which my kids were like, the decider, you can't even decide which vegetable we're having for dinner. So like they never bought into that whole notion. Um, I thought it was the decider in chief. I think I, I even had a t-shirt with like a big D, Superman D on the front of it for a while. Awesome. Uh, yeah, that, those are the like, you know, the very artisanal days of deciding what stays on the internet and what doesn't was like a person looked at it and made a call <laughs> for better or worse. And, and it was mostly around, like right around kind of governments deciding or trying to push back on the rules that, um, the rules that were coming in from from various governments to try to get Google to comply with their standards for what they wanted what they wanted the internet to look like and like Google kind of pushing back I feel like this is a story that has somehow gotten lost in the tech lash or lost in everything else which is that there is this really sweet spot of technology companies putting pushing back against authoritarian regimes or against kind of governments generally who were trying to co-opt platforms to censor um, and just saying, no, we're going to do whatever we want, more or less, and trying to figure out where they drew that line. Um, I think that that's kind of one of the most fascinating periods of like that, like all of content moderation kind of playing out from 2004 onwards, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think there's a couple different phases, right? Like, I think there's the sort of early or the late night, late 1990s, early 2000s, where I think that a lot of the companies who were what we now call platforms, but really still thought of themselves as software companies, right? Like AOL or Excite at Home or Yahoo, it, it, they were in a firm mind, like they do software 
And I think it wasn't until a good bit into their, their life cycle that they started to recognize themselves more as publishers. I'm using that term kind of loosely because it has a legal meaning and a different meaning. Um, but like that they, they are media companies in some sense and it took them a while to embrace that. Um, and I think that Kate, like it wasn't always about confrontation with government. I think when it got to AMAC and I, right, where it was a real dispute and it was about governments trying to force a company to do something, that's where some of that came from. But the decisions about what stays on a platform had been happening for a long time in terms of your community yeah. of service and, and a lot of work being done by those folks, um, removing everything from profanity to whatever, right? And just the sheer numbers, the vast majority of it was user on user. Um, so the you know the, the first time Google did uh, transparency in terms of web search removals uh, was I think in 2002, and it was uh, um, the Church of Scientology versus a versus a Church of Scientology uh, critic criticism site. So that the governments uh, you know caught onto this whole internet thing pretty late um, and started complaining about it late. Um, and it also went from uh, the U.S. government being uh, sort of the principal uh, party there to governments overseas being a, being a much bigger deal. Yeah, I guess I'm kind of also amazed when I look back and I think that Jeff Rosen wrote this piece in 2011, right? Um, and I started talking to you guys and writing my piece in like 2015, late 2015, um, and still no one knew about this. And it's not like Jeff wrote his piece and it was like in like West Hoboken Daily. It was like in like the New York Times Magazine and Wired. And I think it was also in the New Republic. He wrote like three different versions of like the story um, with you guys, with the with Wil the Wilners, with Judd Hoffman, like a whole bunch of other people. And, um, and yet this never got, and I think he like, he identified, he correctly identifies all of the major issues about private platform speech governance and yet it just kind of it just dangled and i feel like it didn't get really widely taken up and it's fascinating to kind of look back do you guys have any thoughts about why like i mean you've also it must be frustrating to have been on the just the very very beginning of this and always having seen it as such a huge issue and then like now watch the curve slowly change to this being on the front page of the new york times every day and content moderation being like a thing that everyone knows what it means. Like, I mean, I'm late to this game comparatively, obviously. Um, I'm just curious what that feels like. It's gotta be a little surreal. You always make me feel like a historical artifact. <laughs> no, it's more We're like a goddess. Like, like that's kind of like, I'm like, if I had one question to ask Ishtar, what would it be? <laughs> like, <laughs> That's more how it goes. Uh, I do. I think Jeff's article was remarkable and how ahead of its time it was, um, or, or in its time and yet not picked up. I, I think there's a couple things. One is I don't think as many people were as touched by these platforms in the time. Um, and so that may account for a little bit of why it didn't surface to, to a wider range of people. I also think honestly, uh, and, and this is slightly a reflection on like the past few years, I think the level of um, malicious manipulation on the platforms by actors, whether they're state actors or private actors, has gotten to a point that is both so visible but also so damaging 
way beyond what I was seeing in 2007, eight, nine. Um, I, I think I, I would consider myself fairly naive and, and I was fairly seasoned in, in looking at content at that point, but pretty naive about the type of um, malicious action that could be taken on, on the platforms during that period. So I, can I just suggest that there's another reason too, which Nicole alluded to earlier, which is that the whole free speech versus authority question looks different when the question is um, the, you know, the Thai government saying this content has to come down because it's critical of the king or, you know, the Turkish government saying, you're not allowed to talk about the, the Armenian genocide than it does when you're talking about individuals saying, I am being abused or attacked on this platform. And then, you know, then it really looks less like, and I think when Jeff wrote that piece, it was really a piece about state authority versus now it's really about what the competing community interests are and individual interests are vis-a-vis -vis the untrammeled free speech of people who may be saying things for very ugly things for very ugly reasons in fashions that really attack individuals. And I think the, the atmospherics of the question are very different. I think I agree with you on the atmospherics, but I think Nicole is right about why it's why this is a big deal now. Um, even back in the, uh, you know, I, I, I always remember that, that Zitrain was a sysadmin when I was like 10 years old. Um, and in that time, he was dealing with exactly those same problems, user to user uh, problems of abuse, the folks that remember the well, like all of these issues have been with us almost since the beginning. The reason why they're on the front page of the New York Times now is because these platforms have become more and more and more and more important to people's actual lives. Um, and it's no longer just uh, the, the, the bunch of geeks that are hanging, hanging out in AOL uh, chat groups, love those people, those are my people, um, but it's also everybody now. And there's much more crossover between the online and the offline. I mean, you, you look at a lot of systems now have real world consequences. And so these fights between users, um, become extremely important as we move more and more things online. And certainly that's something that COVID is ramming home, that as we move our entire society online, that some of the things we use like Zoom uh, become extremely important in a way that they might not have been uh, before. Yeah, so I'm just gonna kind of drive that home and say that like the quintessential example, I think of like, that you kind of learn when you're doing internet law, <clears throat> is um, a rape in cyberspace, which is like a Lambda Moo kind of like super, super kind of, um, I would say now, like then and now esoteric community. Um, and the harms of that were so limited and so not translatable to a, like the global population. And now I would say that like the biggest, one of the biggest um, examples that we have that you hear you know, it's your it's your center square on your content moderation bingo card when you're at a conference is uh, nap is the napalm girl case, um, which is a story of like of you know an individual trying to post something that they thought was historical and then came down and they thought that this was like a huge moment of kind of um, of you know of censorship and harm and 
I agree with what you're saying. I especially agree. And we've talked about this a few times. We had Danielle Citron on as one of our first guests talking about basically the fact that, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say, um, Nicole, and then we're going to pivot to kind of our incredible people in the audience that have all like come in from like the outskirts of cyberspace to ask you questions. Um, but I'm going to make the pitch for this is kind of the end of internet exceptionalism for freedom of expression. The idea that speech is, the speech is different online, but if 95% of speech is is, uh, is happening over private platforms, then it's not the exception, it should be the rule. And so that, that means like a fundamental restructuring of how we think of speech um, and kind of, and how we address you know, these problems and how much, like how much energy we put into to like working on them and getting them right. Um, I'm curious if you think the same, Nicole, or if maybe I'm being totally hyperbolic. I don't know. Not hyperbolic. Well, so I want to turn it over in my head for a little bit. I do think, here's what I think came to light, maybe around the time of like the Sandy Hook, Alex Jones controversy, right? Which is, I think that online platforms thought that they could dismiss the things that were happening off their platform, even when it was initiated online. And I think that they've learned that that is not possible, right? So, but I think that the really hard operational question is, to what extent can an online platform know, like really know the truth of what's happening offline and, and make a good judgment? And I think that that's, there's a lot of questions about how that's done and done well and done fairly. So I think that that's where I feel like companies- Do you think that's a result of the oversimplification of the technology or the oversimplification of corporations? Like how people like think of what corporations know and how like kind of om omniscient they are about what happens on their products. I don't think they re recognize maybe the hard work it would take to know what's happening outside of the company, what's in the company's vision, which is all online. It's log lines, right? It's the video that gets uploaded, but it's not about like, what would it take for a company to find the truth of what's happening in a neighborhood and who's responsible for it? Like, what would that require? And that's a lot. Um, so I think that's one thing. One thing I would, I, I turn to Alex, cause I think it's a really interesting um, moment, which is like, you were there to lead Twitter during this really important moment of like, um, opening up and democratizing expression for for citizens in particular during the time that you were there right and and you got branded and i don't know how much this was branding on your part of branding on like the media but like the the free speech wing of the free speech party that thing which to me as a first amendment lawyer right has changed in its texture with like the brilliant work from daniel citron around what does it mean to allow people to express themselves and how do we prevent others from, from um, oppressing the speech of, of certain populations that are more vulnerable, right, or, or whatever. And, and how do we think about that in terms of the policies we implement on a, on a system? I think like we went into this sort of early on of like, let all the flowers bloom, let everyone speak and that will work out because the marketplace of ideas. And I just feel like the First Amendment take on that is really different these days. Yeah, it, um, so first of all, for the branding, uh, that was something I said. Uh, it was not something I said about Twitter, um, unfortunately. It was something I said about Blogger in respect to Google as a bit Wait, of a joke. Show us your t-shirt. Oh yes, this is a blog. <laughs> um, just in case we reference this anecdote. Uh, but the, um, the, the thing that I, that I really, the thing that 
makes me most excited about this space right now is the number of people who are coming into the First Amendment discussion and the freedom of expression discussion more generally and the viewpoints that they are bringing into that discussion. Uh, Daniel Citrone certainly being one and a genius, um, but also you know many other folks, Kendra Albert at Berkman Center, who's got a, um, a, a fellowship project to bring more people into First Amendment scholarship. Uh, I, I, I posted about this today with respect to the Facebook announcement, but the, the idea of the First Amendment as, a, as an end of itself, yes, there's something to that, but even more importantly, it's the First Amendment as a means to other ends, as a means for the minority to be able to express themselves as against the majority, as a check on majority rule, which means that when the majority goes around and suppresses the minority with freedom of expression, then we're, we're in a different place. And we are frustrating some of the ends that the First Amendment was supposed to be about. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to all the new people uh, basically reimagining how freedom of expression should be applied. Totally. Um, and in that uh, regard, we have one of the people here <laughs> that is reimagining freedom of expression worldwide. Literally, Evelyn Dweck is uh, one of the most brilliant scholars that I know working on freedom of expression and platform governance um, and content moderation. She's at Harvard Law School. Um, you're getting your GHD and your PhD, right? Uh, we call them an SJD. I don't know what the difference is. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Bunch of letters. Very fancy. And um, has been, works on the oversight board with me and is great. And I invited her to come in and speak, but it's, uh, I learned something new from Evelyn every day. So it's really fun to have her here. That's way too kind, Kate. And when you said earlier, you're a relative latecomer to this conversation. I am a relative latecomer, not only to this panel, but to this entire thing. When you started writing your piece in 2015, I am quite sure I had no idea that anyone like Nicole or AMAC existed. Um, and I mean, it's interesting even to hear you guys talk about um, you know, it's still being so First Amendment centered because obviously, um, you know, people can hear me. Uh, I, I don't come from this from a First Amendment uh, framework first and foremost. I mean, obviously, I've done a lot of study of First Amendment now, but um, and, you know, these platforms, they're quintessentially global now. Uh, and I think that is a really big part of all of the trends that you've just been describing and the way that we've moved away from that First Amendment sort of uh, initial um, framing is, is in part because of that, uh, you know, global reach. Um, I just kind of wanted to pivot and also say that, like, I'm curious what you guys, like, I am, I am kind of curious when you say you pivot to First Amendment now. I had, when I first wrote my piece, I said that the platforms had been governed by First Amendment norms. And like one of my professors was like, get that the hell out of here. Like it has, no, don't say First Amendment norms, like just say freedom of expression norms or American free expression norms or something. Um, and I'm curious because one of the things that happened today, which is kind of like, is that the oversight board was named and kind of stood up for the first time to be its own independent thing. This is Facebook's attempt. We've talked about it a few times in the show, but Facebook's first attempt to really have like an accountable appeals, uh, transparent appeals process on content moderation. I'm, Evelyn and I have been covering it. Um, I'm curious to hear what both of you think. If you think it's something that can have, um, 
neither of you, I don't think have had time at Facebook, but we'll bring Alex Stamos in in a second. Um, and I think that, uh, but both of you, do you think it's something that it has like aspects that could be adopted by, um, by others, like in, by other, by Twitter, um, by Google, do you think it's going to be the way that kind of things are governed across platforms in the future? Um, so I tend to agree with our, our former colleague and the brilliant Daphne Keller said, like, we should be really worried that like everyone adopts the same structures and maybe moves towards same rules around how to do content. Like that should be concerning for us. And I think there's a big social conversation that has to be had around that. I don't, I have not read recently, like the final documents of their charter or, or anything. So I'm not exactly sure where this will go. And I'm a little bit nervous. I don't want to prejudge it, right? Like, I kind of feel like we need a solution in this space. And I don't want to squelch any attempt to find that solution. I, I think that there is huge value in having a forum that is international in scope to talk about what the norms of speech should be and to reach some consensus around that. And we have not had that in the last couple of decades, right? A truly international kind of conversation around what's okay to say to people and what's not. And, and that norm building is really important. Um, and, and I think we've shied away from it for a long time. Um, so I, I think that that's a huge value that we have a body responsible for both articulating and publishing um, the reasoning behind some of these decisions that we can then debate as a society. Um, I'm a little, I don't want to, I feel like the, the, what the Facebook board is, is actually a lot narrower than what it's getting promoted as or discussed as. No, that's completely true. That's totally, no, you're totally right. Like How that's so? completely right. I mean, yeah, I totally agree with that. It was sort of announced as this Facebook oversight board. And then sort of as time has gone on, it's uh, jurisdiction has been narrowed and narrowed and narrowed. And it's now it's like, is it the Facebook like Department of Motor Vehicles? You know, is it like not really um, what it was what it was originally? I have a question for the decider though, because um, these decisions are so hard, and I'm not convinced that there is like a right decision in in these cases. And you know, any decision that you make, you're going to make some group of people unhappy. How would you have felt? Like, would would you have been happy in your role if there had been some outside body, independent body that you could have like chucked the most difficult cases to, uh, and sort of get them off your plate and sort of feel a bit more relaxed? Like, is this something that you would have wanted in that role? And yeah. would you have kept the title the decider? <laughs> you had the option of punting. Bear in mind, I never wanted the title of decider. That was no. out. <laughs> I understand, but but you had it and you had the shirt and then you would have this no, but I don't want to decide board that you could punt things to. So would you have to give up the shirt? Yeah, so a whole bunch of reactions. Um, one is here's I, I think the board is about to find out two, two really important things. One is decisions are different than execution. So you need to be careful about whether you're making a decision about the policy that you think is right or wrong or a decision about the execution of that policy that went bad, right? And I think that those are really important to keep separate and the board is about to like run into that issue just in deciding what cases it wants to take. Um, I also think, Ellen, to your point, like they're about to figure out hard decisions are hard for a reason, yeah. right? Like 
hard decisions are hard because you have to choose a side and that side has social and political um, and cultural co consequences. And most companies don't wanna have to be in that place. And that then to your point is, what is a board for? Because I don't wanna own the choosing of the sides. Yeah, and I, and I would invoke Daphne. So Daphne has this great tweet that's basically, we imagine that platforms can bring the whole sprawling chaos of human behavior into compliance with the law, make our lives policeable and police to a degree that no government in history could ever have imagined. Not only do we seem to think it's possible, we think it's a good idea. Um, and here, it's not even the law, right? We're not even asking them to, to, to figure out what's lawful and not lawful. We're asking them to figure out what is right on a, on a question that none of us agree on. Um, so I, I, that worries me a lot. Um, uh, but and, I, and, and partly it's, sorry, go, let's go ahead. No, no, I just saying also I, experimentation is good. So, uh, this is not a problem that society has solved ever before in its history. Uh, so more experimentation on it would be awesome. But in some ways, isn't society like, I mean, part of the problem is the generalist nature of the platform. So if you had the, let's take a few absurd examples uh, just for purposes of illustration. Imagine Facebook had organized itself um, as, you know, Orthodox Jewish Facebook. Um, and it was, did not purport to be a, a, a general platform for everybody. It purported to be uh, a, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, like a, a, a you know, a, a site for the discussion of, of, you know, traditional Orthodox Judaism. And then a community of people wants to come in and discuss Greek Orthodox Christianity. And Facebook would then, I don't think anybody would blink at Facebook, this is Orthodox Jewish Facebook saying, wait a minute, like, that's not what we do here. Right. It That's is almost a public accommodations question. Or like as, right. as Nicole has said, like the First Amendment right for a platform to make itself exactly what it wants to be. Right. right. And no and nobody doubts that like a you know, if you commission a bust of Lincoln, you're allowed to say, Well, wait a minute, I didn't ask for a bust of Washington, right? Like you can't give me a bust of Y. And if you create a forum for X you're allowed to exclude why. The, the difficulty that these platforms have is that they don't actually, they, they make a point of not saying what they're about because they're about whatever their users want. And then some of their users want to do things that others regard as seriously deviant, setting up the problem that AMAX has where they have to, and, and that Daphne Keller is addressing. But isn't that partly because you know, beyond these sort of bland community standards, they actually refuse to say what they're about. I think that they're, those bland community standards are not all that bland. Well, they're less and less bland. So I, I disagree. I think they do say what they're about. Yeah, um, and I think I they too. profess to be like, I mean, I, I don't think you can read or listen to Mark Zuckerberg's famous Georgetown speech, you know, posted on their website as Mark Zuckerberg takes a stand for free expression as anything apart, like other than like a mission statement um, to, to sort of be this open forum, this place for all covers and, and things like that. And I think that that's the problem because if like, as you say, if they were overtly something else, 
that's fine. It said we are what we say on the tin. Uh, it's once you sort of say we are for free expression, but then obviously actually you do have a bunch of rules about who is and isn't allowed, that that's when you get into the tricky part of having to justify, well, okay, so why did you draw these lines though? I was actually also going to say, like, isn't this at some point to Nicole's point about like the doing the hard work of trying to figure out what like norms around free speech are like Robert Post would yell at me at Yale Law School and be like, there is no such thing as a global community. There is, therefore, there is no such thing as global social norms around free speech. Like everyone has their own rules in their communities. And like part of having a small community is that like there is like that like part. And so like, but doesn't that speak to just like, if that's true, Nicole or AMAC or Daphne or Alex or anyone who wants to answer this question, um, which is like, Oh my God, we have like literally like, please of all of these people, no one get coronavirus. We all need your brains. Like don't do anything dangerous. Stay away from sharp objects. Uh, like anyway, this is just a great group right now. But what I was gonna say was just that there seems to be me to be this thing. If you're going towards a, um, the one of the most, like the kind of the most erroneous things that Zuckerberg did say when he set out to start this oversight board. He was like, well, we have this global community. They don't have a global community. They have a global platform that has lots of factionalized communities on it and expect that the communities that they interact with, their neighborhoods, as Nicole said, like their small neighborhoods, their seventh grade class, you know, they're like, their um, lion's club, their, you know, Buddhist like temple, like all of it that they think that that should be like what they want to see and what they want to interact with. Doesn't that just speak to a balkanization of the internet as like the, the, like that'll just be the final end game. Sorry, that was really dark. <laughs> Daphne, say something and save me. <laughs> you gotta introduce Daphne. She oh, Daphne, we've talked about Hello. Daphne. Well, like, can you hear me for a second? <laughs> like, really? Daphne used to work for Nicole and work with- And Alex. And Alex, and um, is uh, uh, now works with- Works with this Alex. Stamos, she used to work with AMAC, and I'm just gonna keep rotating. She was just on a she was just on a couple of podcasts this week with me, um, but and I'm on one next week with Evelyn. So <laughs> the yeah, circle is go. complete. So and you know the the podcast we were on yesterday um, with Mike Masnick was talking about his protocols, not platforms idea, and something I've written about as magic APIs, which is variations on the question of like, given that you do have these diverse communities that Kate is talking about, um, and there is no single Facebook community or single Twitter community, you know, is it better to aim for an outcome where you push control over um, content policies to the edges and let users decide for themselves, I have this tolerance for nudity, or I have this tolerance for violence, or delegate that choice to some trusted entity that isn't Facebook or Twitter, that instead is their Lions Club or their you know, Buddhist community group or whatever it is, which I think is a really interesting set of ideas to explore, but has all of these technical questions that nobody's really kicking the tires on. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. Alex, welcome. Alex is the head of the Stanford Internet Observatory and the former C, uh, no, the chief security officer at Facebook. And you, where were you before, were you before that? I, I was at Yahoo. Okay, Yahoo. That's always, I'm like, oh yeah, that other search engine. Um, so. Before that. Out. 
Yeah. Ouch, ouch. That's a whole other discussion of what it's <laughs> like There's a lot of Google people yeah. I have to please at the moment, Alex. Okay. <laughs> um, but thank you for joining us. Uh, yeah, thanks, yeah. Any thoughts on the Facebook oversight board? Uh, yeah. I mean, we were all discussing this on Twitter, but to, to turn our, our Twitter subtext into text. Um, I mean, to me, the interesting question here, and there's all these incredible scholars of the actual governance component um, and what, what, how we should make decisions around speech. Um, but the, to me, the interesting question is like, how do you take a board like this and, and have them make decisions that are actually practical, right? And you guys touched upon this a lot about the execution. Like most of Facebook speech problems are not that there's really, I mean, there are situations where people disagree with the decision, right? Them taking down Alex Jones and the like, but a lot of their speech problems are things that nobody agrees should be there or that there's a reasonably wide agreement, but in the enforcement, you have to turn these knobs back and forth. If you turn the knob towards catching more of it, you always catch uh, more uh, legitimate speech, right? And and I just don't see how this oversight board does it. It's, you know, a bunch of law professors, uh, folks from NGOs, like really smart people who are also used to making arguments in front of that can be interpreted really in an intelligent way, right? And like, you're not gonna be able to come up with a, here's a 17 point test if this thing is hate speech and then expect that to get enforced, right? Like it's gonna have to be something that you're going to first have people enforce in 85 different languages. And these are folks who are, you know, not making a ton of money working in effectively call centers. And then they're gonna train AI to do it. And and I just don't, I don't know how this works in, in that way because like when, when inside of Facebook and I'm sure it's the same at Twitter and Google, when the policy team makes decisions, they usually make it in collaboration with the people who have to actually enforce it. So they'll do something like, um, okay, we're going to change our rules on this. Let's model what that would have done over the last month, right? And they'll build a computational model of like, oh, here's an example of all the content we would have taken down. And you look at all the side examples, like, oh man, look at all these false positives we did. We have to change it. So like, there's this kind of collaborative, but that's not how, you know, this is like a, a, the whole Facebook Supreme Court, the, the US Supreme Court throws out a decision and then it takes five years for all of these, uh, you know, trial courts and circuit courts to figure out what the hell it means. You can't have a process like that at, at this speed. So I think just the practical questions are, are really interesting. Can I kick that to AMAC because you, well, AMAC and Nicole, which is like, you guys both brought up the first amendment and like, there's nothing more classic as Alex said about the first amendment and first amendment and like the Supreme Court is that it takes like a speech case, like once a year, if once a year, and that these are such slow, slow, slow incremental decisions. Um, there's no way that the pace of this, basically one of the things that um, I think is going to be really hard and Evelyn knows is that all of this is supposed to happen within 90 days, a full review, a full search of like the record, everything within 90, which is like at once both far too slow for certain types of speech decisions to be made and, uh, and far too long or, and far too short for like really thoughtful analysis, you'd think in some type of, in some type of sense. Um, I just, I'm kind of curious, like you're both lawyers, like coming from like a kind of a first amendment speech perspective, whether you think that this is, I don't know, just, do you think that the court model works as a solution or do you think that there's something else out there? Alex, do you want to go first? Or I... No. <laughs> Stunned uh, silence. So, so I, I have an, a, a practical assumption that 
this is not a body that will look at all appeals. Like it can't, right? So it's much more like the Supreme Court in choosing specific ones. And in that sense, I think of it more in the way that the FTC sort of creates its own common law, right? Which is it chooses a poster child for a particular issue that it wants to set a standard around. And it brings an action against them and usually settles in a consent decree with a certain set of remedies that they think are necessary. So I think like in the norm building process, you could have this board, now, now Nicole is just kind of making this up, you could have this board pick the right cases that set a standard in a particular area, political, hate speech, social, whatever it is, and, and address certain principles pulled from that particular case that then tells the company and maybe others, here's what we think is the right thing to do as, as measured against a human rights framework. To put, take the First Amendment out of the, the case and, and call it a First Amendment framework. In that sense, I think any other company would be looking at that decision and saying, huh, someone made some, some calls, like a, a really smart set of people made some calls about where to fall into, on the line. And I can now incorporate that into my policies, right? That strikes me as the most effective thing it could do, as opposed to like on a first come first serve basis, take whatever comes in the door. Okay, so I, I love that analogy and and it strikes me as super compelling, but it has an immediate flaw that I wanna push you on. So when the FTC comes in and it says to company X, this activity that you're engaged in is you know, damaging to consumers, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an inappropriate trade practice, um, uh, the company then enters into a consent decree and that becomes precedential vis-a-vis -vis other companies and the incentive structure for other companies to abide by not running afoul of the fact pattern that the consent decree describes is that it avoids litigation on the part of the FTC. So in your analogy, um, the problem is that there is no comparable incentive for Facebook to engineer against the standard that the oversight board has uh, articulated because the fact pattern doesn't give rise to liability. It gives rise to your own hired oversight board saying tisk, tisk, tisk. And so my question is, what is, as a functional matter, the like, does it break down because the because there actually isn't the equivalent of getting sued by the FTC as the backstop? Like, so Facebook's oversight board says, okay, we're leaving this up or Facebook is wrong because this is the standard. What's the incentive for Facebook to engineer toward that standard just because the oversight board's, you know, gone like this with it? I want Evelyn to kind of, Evelyn has like a tremendous amount of knowledge about the actual documents that made the oversight board. So I'm just going to kick this to her maybe. Okay. I mean, I have a bunch of thoughts about all of that. I mean, I think in response to like, and I'll, I'll try and tie it together. Like we have multiple problems with content moderation. We have so many problems and this oversight board is only going to solve like a very small part of them. The enforcement part is, is a big problem. 
Um, but the oversight board isn't directed at, at solving that. And so the, it's just directed at sort of having public reasoning. And, and Alex was talking about, you know, that rules are formulated with the enforcement capabilities in mind. Well, let's ventilate that. Let's get that out and let's have that argument in front of the oversight board because we should know about that. That's not how we talk about it currently. We talk about it in the mode of high principle and that's not true. So let's 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 have a public conversation about what we can and can't do in real terms, um, which gets to the point that I think Ben's making, because one of the big criticisms that people make of this board is that it's 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 binding only in a very small amount of cases. So it's actually only binding on that particular part of the, the content, that particular item of content. And then it's recommendations more generally are not binding. The, the Facebook can take it on board and see whether it's technically feasible, I believe is, is the phrase, um, which is obviously, uh, you know, enormously elastic, but I actually, and, and people criticize this a lot, but I actually think it's a big plus because for these exact reasons that we're talking about, um, that we actually don't necessarily know what's feasible and it's going to evolve and it's so fast and it's so rapidly evolving. And this is one of the big criticisms that gets made of the FTC and, and things as well is that, you know, locking things in um, when the whole market and, and what these companies can and should do is moving so quickly uh, is, is not necessarily the best approach. And so I'm interested in this dialogue developing between the oversight, oversight board and Facebook, where they talk to each other about like, this is what the rule should be. Okay. But this is what we're capable of. Okay. Well, you know, and then they come back and they say, actually, we've worked on it and we've, 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 we can do this now. Um, that's, I just want visibility into that rather than pretending that this is all happening up here about like first amendment norms or international human rights principles when actually that's not true. Daphne, I want, you want to go, but I also really want to get um, AMAC and Alex's reaction to that, but Daphne go first. Oh, you're muted, babe. Yeah. Uh, so I, th I think this actually ties together um, what Evelyn just said and Nicole's FTC point and, and what Alex Seamus said about um, how ideally what you want is to take a recommended policy or remedy and then actually test it and see if it works in practice and iterate and fix it. And in a way, uh, the FTC process more so than a court process gets you closer than that, closer to that, because by the time a consent decree issues, there's been this back and forth with the company and, and the regulator. So they, they get to something that is you know, more tailored to the world of the possible. And so I'm interested, and I was going to ask Evelyn, but it sounds like maybe we don't know the answer. Like I'm interested in how much the structure of the oversight board permits that back and forth to happen so that by the time a ruling issues or a policy recommendation issues, it actually is informed by the kinds of questions that we want them to have answers to. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the documents, definitely leave it all possible and you know every every decision that the oversight board makes will be publicly available and facebook is forced to publicly respond to that now that could look like a number of different things like it could facebook's response could just be like noted thanks or it could be like a substantive engagement with what the board said so this kind of gets to what ben's saying is like it really all depends on the parties engaging in this in good faith and taking it you know, and, and, and doing their best. Um, and I don't think we have any reason to doubt that Facebook will, because why else would it have done this entire thing? But of course, you know, that's my sort of youthful optimism. I'm, I'm very prepared to be proved wrong. So we'll see. Amac? I do think um, it, Facebook wants to be able to hand some uh, high profile cases off to somebody else. Um, and that's probably good for the high profile cases. Who knows? We'll see. Um, 
and it also, I think that's the power that Ben, uh, that, uh, ben is looking for, which is it wants to pass this buck. It's desperate to pass this buck. Um, and if it doesn't actually do anything that the, uh, that the oversight board says to do, um, it will be less effective at passing the buck. We'll still fool, fool some of the people, um, but it will not fool as many of the people um, in terms of being able to pass the buck. And it very, very strongly wants to pass the buck. So I think that um, that is where some of the power will come, uh, particularly over the next uh, while, particularly in the startup phase. I think that's I think that's totally true. And I also think it'll be really interesting the first time the board's decision runs counter to the business objectives of the company, like wanting to be in a particular market, wanting to partner with a particular other company somewhere, right? Like when that moment happens, that'll be a really interesting test of how this, how effective this is as a governance structure. Yeah. I, so I was writing up the paper a couple of weeks ago, the, the like law review paper that I'm writing on this. And, um, I kind of was like, uh, I was like, well, you know, um, they say that a servant can't serve two masters, but you really can actually serve two masters if the outcomes are completely commiserate. So it does not matter that fa if Facebook's outcomes mean that in order to rehabilitate their public persona, they have a accountable board that is, as AMAC says, like the real deal and does the real thing and like makes all of those moves, then, then like that's actually, those are two, th th like those are two masters that it can both serve and that they are complementary to each other. Um, I'm curious what you have to, what you're thinking about all of this, Alex Stamos, sorry. Yeah, so to, to Ben's question, I think the stick here is, is that this is meant to hold off regulation by 20 different countries that will be uh, contradictory and perhaps actually very uh, hurtful of human rights and then certainly not helpful for Facebook's business, right? Uh, I was in Brussels in February, uh, which feels like a different life now. Uh, you know, in a past life, I was in Brussels. And, um, <laughs> you know, they have like this incredibly aggressive, they had this incredibly aggressive schedule, I'm not sure how it changed with coronavirus, of tech regulation that is, very, very much divorced from the reality of what happens, right? So at least as divorced as this oversight board will be from reality it is going to be a hundred times closer than the, the European Commission, the European Parliament, right? And so I think they, they have a real motivation to follow the rules um, to that extent. But it, it, I think that's also the, the likely, the most likely way the oversight board dies is not going to be because Facebook just doesn't like its results. It's going to be that these countries move forward anyway and the, the oversight board becomes irrelevant, right? Because well, as everybody here knows, the rules say the oversight board is subservient to law. One of the great lies that Facebook says, and I think so for a reasonable reason, is we follow local law, right? Like there's a big asterisk on we follow local law. And the, the amount of local law that Facebook follows in Germany is very different than Vietnam, although they just followed local law in Vietnam in a way that I personally disagree with. And do you, and so, do you think that that's, I'm curious if Nicole and AMAC and Daphne think that that's as true now as it was then. Is there a slow, did, was there more pushback against local local law? when you guys were, when you guys were, uh, working at your respective companies as to like when Alex was at Facebook, which was like, I think like three years ago, right, Alex, like not too long ago, 2018. Yeah. August, okay. 2018, they left. 
There, I mean, there was some, uh, I'll take the first jump at this because I've got the easiest pat answer, which is like when I started at Twitter, we were only in the United States. Um, so I went from Google that was in every country and had had people uh, arrested in some uh, to a place that basically only existed in San Francisco, um, which is just a better place to be in from this perspective. And as the things expand, that's true. I think the other thing is that uh, these platforms have become important in a lot more places than they were before. And really it's that importance that drives the oversight, which drives the risk uh, that, um, that Alex Stamos is talking about. So I do think there, there is more there there, um, but it's not, it's, not, um, uh, it's not the passage of time. It's the fact that the internet is really important in Vietnam right now. Um, and that is true now for every country across the globe, uh, pretty much. Uh, and so you have every country in the globe with a real uh, opinion on this um, and a real distaste for the fact that many of these companies are US based. Um, and I don't just mean that from the capitalist perspective, but also from the like the mindset is US uh, is a US mindset. Um, and, uh, you know, breaking out of that is going to take a long time, certainly if the shoe was on the other foot, and it may well be where China was the locus of most internet platforms. And we were all thinking about Chinese companies making allowances for the quirky US uh, First Amendment, uh, we would be, I would be very angry. Um, and so it is- well, That's because you're an American. Sorry. <laughs> well, that's just <laughs> a med That was American, a meta but... commentary, sorry. <laughs> yeah. But sorry, Nicole, go ahead. Yeah, my Canadian friend, Alex. Um, so, so I think uh, you and I have talked about this before, Kate, right? Like the pushing back on countries got more difficult over time. And it was kind of a function of like how the internet grew up, right? So like in the early, like mid nineties to I would say mid 2000s, that first decade of real commercially available internet, we were in like, Europe, Canada, the US, Japan, Australia, like it was a handful of countries that um, largely had the same rule of law processes uh, or structures, um, largely had the same approach to free expression, largely had the same approach to privacy, not in every detail, but largely the same. And so there were two things that happened around 2007. One was YouTube, where everything went from text and therefore very language-based to visual. And so all of a sudden you could reach across cultures because you could see it and you didn't have to understand the language of it. And at the same time, you had greater internet penetration in a group of countries that were not like the early first generation internet countries, right? Where Turkey, Vietnam, China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, where the norms around both rule of law as well as free expression and privacy got really different and were causing a bunch of conflicts. And that to me is like where the pushback starts to happen is when we actually have a bunch of markets that we want to be in as a company, but we aren't in line on both like the values as well as the way to address disputes um, in the same way. I wanted to highlight something that Nicole said earlier that I think is actually very relevant, which is you talked about how this has become much more adversarial. All of these rules are no longer just about the emergent properties of how do people interact with each other on a discussion board. It is about people, it has become much more adversarial 
of people understanding the rules, manipulating the rules to their benefit. And that is both on the speakers and the governments, right? And I think the two big changes that I saw during my time with Facebook were one, changes that had predated, but like the Arab Spring was a huge change in the knowledge of autocratic governments understanding that they have to control information online if they want to survive. And then among democracies, the big change was NetzDG in Germany. And that really, NetzDG really changed the way that Facebook approached speech versus governments. And that is effectively the start of the, um, the, the collapse I think we're slowly seeing of Facebook giving into local governments that they will do whatever they want was it effectively by giving it to the Germans, they opened up the door to have to give it to everybody. Um, and the Germans would say, well, our law is special and our history is special and stuff, but that's just not how it works, right? And you can't make that argument to Turkey. You can't make the argument to, to Vietnam that the Germans get something that you don't. All right, so I wanna uh, oh, back up. Hold on one second. Daphne had one quick thing oh. she was gonna say really quickly. Go so ahead, Daphne. I I, I'll try to make this super quick. I think this rubber meet the road moment that Nicole defines where um, the business imperatives of the of a company to do what a particular government or market demands come into conflict with what the oversight board said to do will also be really interesting if it puts Facebook in a position of saying, oh, we are doing this because a law requires that, you know, Vietnamese law requires this. Um, because that's the only way you get out from having to do what the oversight board tells you. And then the Vietnamese government kind of has to admit if their law requires this or not, because right now there's a lot of very productive ambiguity for governments in sort of pushing for things to happen, letting platforms do it in ways that probably silence more expression than their national law would do. And yeah. nobody gets to challenge that or you know go to court over it. So the Facebook oversight board differentiation about what's legally required versus not may surface that in really interesting ways. Yeah, it's like the whole Christchurch call, right? Is forcing the companies to come up with rules that the, the countries would not line, line up beside themselves. Like they don't want to take responsibility for the fact that like, a huge number of people are being over-censored. Um, and so they get the benefit of what they want without the downside of having to actually live up to the fact that they caused it. I'm sorry, Nicole, I jump in. No, I was just saying like, I guess, I think Daphne's insight is exactly right. And like, what an enormous opportunity for the human rights community, right? To put some real pressure vis-a-vis -vis this board on governments that are doing really terrible things to the people in their population. It, it, it's a potentially an enormous opportunity for them. I really All think right. of it as, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ben. So I want to back up and talk about something we probably should have talked about at the outset of the show, which is that today Facebook named the board. And that means that, that sorry. there's... I'm sorry? <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. Did I not say that? It's because it's been my entire day. I'm yeah, no, no. You mentioned worst. it kind of in passing. But let's go back and talk like, who did they name? And what is the list of people that they name say about if we can glean anything about what this board is going to be and what we can expect from it? So, uh, like uh, Evelyn, get us started about this. But like, like, you know, if we were a news show, this is the question we would have led with. What like what happened today? So they announced a group of twenty people who are all very serious and impressive. Uh, every news story in the first paragraph had that there's a Nobel laureate, a former prime minister, um, you know, a bunch of constitutional law scholars, uh, reporters, um, and, you know, Alan Rusbridger got uh, reduced in pretty much every story I read as the editor that um, published uh, Edward Snowden's leaks um, and, and things like that. So it's an impressive and serious group of people, which as someone like I'm sure Kate also feels this, as someone that's devoted a, a large amount of their time studying this thing, it's a bit of a relief to see that it's not like just, a, you know, a, a bunch of hooligans who are, who are going to um, mess it up. But um, I, you know, 
I'm, I, I don't really have any interesting comments to make on personnel because I'm still really interested in the issues of uh, design that we've been talking about um, because I think, you know, you could have the best, most diverse, and that's the other thing they've done very well on the diversity front. Um, I kind of like imagine them, um, you know, playing one of those games with like where you have to like uh, guide a marble by tilting a board. And I feel like they're like, oh, we've got a conservative person. Well, we need a, you know, a progressive person and a male and a female. And like, so I'm, you know, I think they've done reasonably well on that front. Although of course um, with 20 people, you're never going to get perfect representation. Um, but you could have, you know, these are an impressive group of people, but if you don't empower them, um, there's only so much they can do. And, and to that, I would basically just say that, like, it's up to them to empower themselves. <laughs> and that's actually, like, I've thought this the entire time, which is that, like, just like there's just a tiny crack in the sidewalk and some water gets in and it freezes and expands, like, and the crack becomes a giant, you know, well, I hope this isn't a sinkhole. Like I should make it come up with a better analogy, like an oak tree or something and an acorn or something like that. But like the general idea is that like you have something small, you have this very small chink in the armor of Facebook. And this has potentially, if they keep pressing it, the real power of this, as AMAC pointed out and Nicole pointed out, is like if they go against some of these directives, if Facebook goes against some of the directives that are issued to it by the board, it's going to look bad for the board. Sorry, not bad for the board. It's going to look bad for Facebook. And like that goes against the entire reason they did this entire thing, if you're kind of being the most cynical about it, which is that they did it for their own rehabilitation and reputation and the, like coming back from the tech lash. Um, and so I, I do think that, um, this group actually has potential to leverage. Um, and one of the reasons I did all of the, spent so much time on this is like the last third of my article is basically all of the ways that like the board can manipulate and take advantage of the amendment structure of like all of the documents, like the structures of all of the documents they currently stand in order to push for, uh, to, to order to like create a lot of power for themselves as an institution and order and like then also for user groups to come about and create moments for like impact litigation of like using the system to basically um, come, at, uh, come at Facebook and come at some of these other groups uh, for that purpose. I don't know if it's ever gonna happen. I have no idea, but I like, I actually was very heartened by today's. So what most people didn't get was that there was a press call with all four, four co-chairs on it. And um, they wrote their own who stuff. Who were the co-chairs? What? Who were the co-chairs? The co-chairs are um, Hella Thorne-Schmidt, who is the former prime minister of Denmark. Um, uh, Catalina Botero, who is the, um, the former uh, UN um, Freedom of Expression Rapporteur uh, to the UN, and uh, Jamal Green, who's a Columbia law professor, and side note, Taleb Kweli's brother, and then, <laughs> um, and then uh, also M Michael McConnell, who is, uh, who is a former 10th Circuit judge in the US uh, Federal Circuit and uh, in the um, a Stanford Law Professor. So those are the so those are like the those are the chairs 
And it's a pretty, like, and then the other ones are just as illustrious. Pam Carlin from the US, who like you might recognize from Trump's impeachment hearings. Uh, never mind the fact that she was always kind of floated as being Ginsburg's replacement uh, um, in the Supreme Court. There is, uh, you know, John Samples from the Cato Institute, who is um, kind of a, uh, a libertarian voice that has been very balanced for a long time. Um, Evelyn Aswad, who's amazing from the U.S., and there's and Nick Souser, who is at, like in Australia, who is an incredible content moderator, like cause for content moderation. Um, but generally, I just think that like it's a group that is like they they seem pretty independent, and they really don't want after coming from a year of dealing with Facebook, watching Facebook build this, and then transitioning now to like getting the over separate permissions from the oversight board and starting to cover the oversight board, uh, they're super independent. They like really don't, they don't want Facebook to tell them anything. So that's, I mean, that's, I guess, a little bit of a good thing. Uh, I don't know whether, how that's going to cut. But do you think these people are going to be able to make any decisions? So when I look at this, like you have some incredibly broad switch, you know, from Cato to some of the biggest critics. I, I just, I, I'm not sure how, I mean, so you know about the structure. Like, is it just majority vote? Do you need a supermajority? Like, how are, are no, they going to no. have subcommittees? Five-person panels. Five-person mm -hmm. panels will look at every case, and then the five-person panels they will like they don't they only need a majority, and then they're they're pushed for consensus, but they only need a majority, and then they can like their decisions get sent to the full board for approval. If the board doesn't approve the decision, then it goes back down with the majority vote of the whole board. So you have like an in, on bonk to decide whether they take Basically, it or not. It's a little bit on bonky, yes. So I I would agree with what um, with what both Evelyn and Kate said uh, that was uh, happy and quite optimistic uh, about this board and how good they are. They're they're smart people clearly, uh, and some are friends. So like great people, uh, many of them. Um, but the thing, the one thing I would say as a negative on this board is that. Um, uh, I don't know of any of them that have actually had to make many content decisions. I know. Um, this is my huge and, concern. Yeah. I, I actually, I, I had, I found out about this a week ago, honestly, AMAC. And like, I, that was what I yelled at them about for like 10 minutes. So like none of these people are content, except for Nick, like none of these people have looked and like, they look at speech decisions or freedom of expression decisions, but they do not look at Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but like they do not look at like, they're not looking at online content moderation decisions, which are an entirely different beast. Well, and also uh, like this is a this is a thing that's been going on for more than 20 years, more, you know, probably around 30, 40 years. There are people who have been doing this for that long, who have developed an expertise and a skill set that presumably would have been a useful thing to have on this board. Doesn't have to be the whole board. Um, but that would have been a good thing for them to realize. Uh, I do think part of that is that the people who make these decisions at many companies are not given the respect that they deserve. Um, and I do think that's what happened here. They, they brought a bunch of people that they do have respect for, which is good. Um, and they didn't include the people who actually do this um, and have developed skills in doing it that, um, that I think Facebook has had lots of trouble over the years respecting that group of individuals. Um, and it, it does kind of show in this particular 
uh, composition. But so nobody who's done that work has not worked for a competitor, right? That's the thing here, right? Like anybody right, so who has relevant experience is going to be seen as like a Silicon Valley insider. Um, these are incredibly smart people who are going to get a hell of a lesson uh, in how the internet actually works, right? I mean, I would love to be, I mean, one thing I'm missing, I'm not being there. I would have loved to be in that first discussion of like, this is how actually content moderation works. And this is why ML sucks. Um, and here's example. I, I expect what they'll do is they'll make them work queues, right? Like I would have all 20 of them sit and, and work the job of a content moderator for an hour. Like uh, I, my team, we would do that kind of stuff. Most people in the policy team will go and work content moderation queues so they get a feel of what it's like. And, and, and Mark um, is famous. be incredible. He won't do that, right? Like the, 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 I mean, I take your point, maybe yeah. some of them work for competitors, but this isn't a com competition thing, right? I think you could find someone who was very good at content moderation who had actually done it, maybe even worked at Facebook in the past. Right, but the customers, but, but the customers that, of this board. Can I ask you just like, I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of what the profile is of, of the person that you're describing. It can't be somebody who works for Facebook because you know, then you're basically getting Facebook content moderators to review Facebook content moderation, which kind of defeats the purpose of an outside board. It presumably can't be somebody who currently works for a competitor organization. So what is the what is the background and profile of the sort of person who has deep, rich experience in content moderation, but is meaningfully available in real time to come uh, do this sort of work. And who isn't on this call? Yeah. So, so, but Ben, I think, I think that's just the question of how do you find a judge, right? Like the, 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 um, there are plenty of judges. Many of them have worked for companies. You can do the same thing here. There are lots of people who have done significant work. And I know a bunch of them who are not currently working at any company and who could have been a part of this board. Again, this is not about appointing other people. I, like, I don't care who's on the board in the, at the end of the day. This is a very good set. One piece that they really missed, and I think this is a pathology of Facebook, is that they missed that the people who have experience doing this job exist, are out there, and are valuable, and could play and be, in, be useful in a group of people that include former prime ministers and people with fancy law degrees, right? And that, uh, would have been a great thing to add into the mix of this board. And there are tons of people out there. Like, I don't, I don't think the idea that these people are all currently working for competitors, it just doesn't hold water the same way that not all lawyers are working in conflicting law firms and therefore can't be judges. The customer this of this is one of the things page. that first, this is one of the things that, that struck me first as a value of the oversight board when it was first announced is basically it takes a bunch of people who are not Silicon Valley insiders who have tremendous respect and credibility in their own worlds and it educates them in the things that the Silicon, the people who've done this work know so that they can go out and educate the world with the credibility that they have that you know those of us who've done the work can't, can't approach. Um, so that is a huge upside of it, but it will definitely take time. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, it it doesn't really, you're, you're totally right on the merits, AMAC, but the, the customer of this page of these incredible bios is Narinda Modi, it's the it's Vestiger, it's um, the members of the DCMS committee in the House of Commons. These are the people they're speaking to with these folks. And yep. I think what, so the cynical view of this is, the truth is, is being inside of Facebook is a pain in the ass because nobody's ever happy with any decision you make. And like the fundamental 
complaint from everybody around the world is Facebook is too powerful. And I want that power to be used to squash my enemies, right? That is, that is the, the fundamental thing that everybody is saying. And so these people now, many of whom are like big critics of the company are now going to have to live that and are going to go at their cocktail par parties at Davos uh, and in Brussels and the like are going to be talking about it. And I think that's part of the cynical view here is that if you create a group of people who had to actually live through the difficulty of global speech regulation, that maybe you'll start to do it. The people are going to be the most pissed from this, honestly. It's going to be like the, the whole, I'm just going to use the New York Times as an example, but effectively like the pro speech control media in the United States and in some other, other Western countries, so like The Guardian and such. Because if you look at these people, I think what's going to happen is in many cases, they're going to decide not to moderate speech because they're going to finally understand the difficulty of doing so without really suppressing people's rights globally. Um, and so you might see Facebook be less aggressive on speech moderation than more. Um, so for hey, example, like on the, the coronavirus stuff. Sorry, go ahead, Alex, finish. So like on the coronavirus stuff, Facebook has moved extremely aggressively to taking down coronavirus misinformation as defined by the World Health Organization, which has been extremely controversial. They did that like in a handful of days because of external criticism. If that got kicked to this board, you could very well see a board like this, one, not act for a couple of months. And then the, what they would come out with would be something very careful and calibrated, right? And so um, I think actually the people who are going to be least happy about this are the people who've been asking for more moderation, because I don't see this kind of group being able to just decide on, let's do something super aggressive that has all kinds of side consequences that they're going to end up being much more conservative than people expect. That's just my, that, that that's a cynical view, I think too, but I think that's what's going to happen. We have All right, to we are going to have to leave it there because yeah. we have already gone a bit over and, uh, you know, uh, that we could go on for hours. Um, thank you, Nicole and Amac and Daphne and Alex and Evelyn, uh, some of whom we knew you were going to be here and some of whom just popped up. Uh, this has been a terrific conversation. Um, Kate. What's our sign off? First of all, thank you all for doing the show. Oh, oh my gosh. I'm so glad that you guys could come. I thought, it's, I feel like this was just absolutely. It's crazy to follow a uh, doctor who is uh, putting himself in harm's way in New York and then two amazing Supreme Court scholars. <laughs> like, uh, We've uh, got like a weird but wonderful <laughs> kind of like cast of characters that come on this show. But today was very special. Like having all of you, this was really great. And this speaking is really of which, wonderful. tomorrow we have my awesome colleague, Margaret Taylor uh, at Brookings and Lawfare. She covers Congress for us. Uh, I don't really know how to say this except really bluntly. Margaret is super fun and, um, and of course, super in lieu of fun. Uh, and she uh, spent a lot of time in the State Department Legal Advisor's Office. She does a lot of foreign relations law. She also uh, worked for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. She's just got a very interesting, diverse background, and she's uh, 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 just really rip-roaringly good conversation, among other things. So uh, that'll be tomorrow at 5 uh, Eastern time, of course. Kate, what's our sign-off? I'm bringing uh, a guest before we sign off. Anna! That's our sign-off. Anna! <laughs> Daphne have known since she was like two, so she's just saying hi. <laughs> oh my God, you're too cool. You're just like, <laughs> my God, take that to Instagram. Leave us alone. This is Zoom. God, don't you know anything? <laughs> right. It's just for old people. All the cool people are on Instagram. 
Although, oh my god! Assuming their content does not fall afoul of content moderation policy. It's so I, I good to wife, see you guys. My uh, wife told me the other day that she saw one of her friends posted on Facebook or Twitter that the uh, five-year-old in in her house had asked for a family meeting and um, to discuss something of concern to her, and uh, the older child had said. Um, and had suggested that they do the family meeting on Zoom. And the older child said, we don't need to do it on Zoom. We're all in the same room. And the younger child had, had burst into tears and said she wanted to do it on Zoom because that's where we do real meetings. <laughs> so this that, is that just is... a new set of social norms in the social yeah. universe of the internet that we're all making up together. <laughs> there you go. Oh, man. But right. according to Alex, I feel like going forward, the oversight board is going to be the free speech wing of the global party. Uh, if like, if Alex, yeah, like an AMAC is like, yes, that is the beautiful, the kiss, the chef's kiss. Um, yeah. Anyways, guys, this has been fantastic. Thank Super you for great. coming. Thank um, you. And remember to everybody, if you can't have fun, you can still, you know, in lieu of fun, hang out with us. Bye guys. Love you. Mwah.